The text for the sermon this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 2. Here in Revelation 2, we consider the verses 18 through 29. The words of our text read as follows, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say... I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Following the proclamation of the word, we will begin our response by singing together Psalm 2, the stanzas 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning we have before us the letter which our Lord wrote to the church at Thyatira. Now this city is not the most well-known from the sources that we have. There was not a lot written about it at that time. There are a few things we do know, however. In terms of the seven cities which received a letter from the Lord Jesus, Thyatira was by far the smallest of them. And Thyatira was a city that was specifically known for its trade guilds. And you can think of these trade guilds as being like kind of unions. These trade guilds or these unions really dominated life in Thyatira. And each of these guilds had a patron god or goddess. And so guild meetings were not just about conducting business, but more or less they were festivals to their patron deities. 
Well, to the church in the smallest of cities, the Lord Jesus sends the longest of the letters. And when we look at that letter as we just read it, then we get the sense that the believers there were not facing difficulty in terms of persecution, in the sense that their lives were in danger, but they were facing a different struggle, namely that of an economic sort. Keep in mind these guilds, which really dominated life in the city. And if you have Christians who refuse to take part in these guilds because of these other gods or goddesses, it meant that these Christians who would own businesses would very quickly lose their business, they would lose their whole livelihood, and in fact, by refusing to take part in these guild festivals, they would be ostracized from all social life. And so all their lives may not have been in danger, there was a serious temptation they faced of potentially compromising. They wanted to balance their service of the Lord along with their need for daily living and their livelihood. And so the Lord Jesus addresses this church. And he makes it clear to the congregation at Thyatira He's very much aware of what is taking place in their midst. He's very much aware of the circumstances that they are dealing with. But he also warns them that what he said in Matthew 16, verse 27, still stands, that he is coming and he will repay each person according to what he has done. And so this morning I proclaim to you the word of God, doing so under the theme, the Son of God warns Thyatira that he gives according to works. We consider three points. First, he exposes Jezebel's works. Secondly, he punishes Jezebel's works. And finally, he rewards those who keep his works. Brothers and sisters, looking at the beginning of the letter, we see how the Lord Jesus identifies himself in addressing this church. In the first place, he identifies himself as the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. The fact that he identifies himself here as the Son of God is noteworthy, because this is the only time in all of Revelation where this specific title is used. And it refers to the fact that he indeed does have authority. It ties to the quote from Psalm 2, which you find at the end of this letter. It's also interesting to note that the main God served there in Thyatira, and God there is used in quotation marks, was the God Apollo. And this God was identified as the sun God, and he was considered to be the son of Zeus. Well, not only is the Lord Jesus the son of God, his eyes are like flames of fire. The Lord Jesus sees all. He sees even those hidden thoughts. There's nothing that's ever hidden from his penetrating gaze. And then his feet, they're like burnished bronze. It gives the picture of stability. But it also calls to mind something about Thyatira, because one of the stronger guilds in Thyatira was the guild for the bronze workers. Now, it's noteworthy that 
the Lord Jesus is writing this letter to Thyatira in order to admonish them. But before he begins with the admonishment, he begins, starts with the positives. You see, the Son of God is not only looking for bad things or for the weaknesses, but he delights to see the fruits of salvation on display among his people. And as he looked at Thyatira with that penetrating gaze which sees all, there were some in the congregation who did in fact display the fruits of the Spirit. And therefore he speaks of love, faith, service, and patient endurance. We can briefly look at each one of these things. The first thing he mentions there is that there's love. And love is primary among what Christ requires of his people. You can think of that well-known chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest of these is love. Galatians 5, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And the first fruit that's mentioned is love. But the Lord Jesus also saw faith. He saw that there were those in the congregation who continued to persevere, who clung to him for everything they needed. He commented on their service, so they saw the needs of others, and then they acted on what they saw. You could say that the ministry of mercy was really functioning there in Thyatira. And there were also those who were patiently enduring. In the face of trial, they held fast their faith. They didn't waver. They didn't compromise. But it wasn't as though these things existed and were stagnant either, because the Lord Jesus continues in verse 19, he speaks that your latter works exceed the first. So these believers here in Thyatira are actually the opposite of the believers in Ephesus. Ephesus is the first of the letters that the Lord Jesus sent, and there the believers were abandoning their first love. Well, it's not the case in Thyatira. Here you have believers that are continuing to grow in these faith, to grow in their love. And yet, in spite of all these positives, not all is well. As we read in verse 20, the Son of God has something against this church, and it's the fact that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, And the Lord Jesus explains how she'd been active in that church. She taught or she seduced the people to engage in sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. We read that and it's very different than the culture in which we live. So we have to ask, what exactly is going on here? When the Lord Jesus speaks about Jezebel, it's likely a certain influential and very persuasive person in the church. And this person who's identified as Jezebel had not been quiet either. They'd been active. They were promoting their thoughts. They were teaching. But all their activity was very negative because this Jezebel had come into the church and she'd identified herself as a prophetess. That was the task of the prophet to reveal, the peop- the, to reveal God to the people so that the people would in turn confess the name of God. And so this Jezebel came into the congregation and she told the people, look, I'm a prophetess 
and I have received a special revelation from God that you need to hear and that you need to act on. And clearly she was persuasive because there were some members who had been led into sexual immorality and who were eating food sacrificed to idols. It's actually the same sins that are mentioned in the letter to the church at Pergamum. And this sexual immorality and the food sacrificed to idols, those are the things that you would find taking place at the guild festivals. The people would be worshiping their patron god or goddess, but their worship included those two matters. And so as a result, Jezebel had caused the people to abandon their loyalty to the one true God. Now we have to understand Jezebel is likely not this person's real name. It's a name given to her by the Lord Jesus so that in doing so he might expose her works of darkness. The name Jezebel is familiar to most of us. We're familiar with that name from another person we read of in Scripture. It's the wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament. And for those of us who are familiar with her, we know that her reputation was not entirely a positive one. In 1 Kings 16, verse 31, we read, And if it had been a light thing for him, that's Ahab, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat... He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now, if you just read that verse in isolation, it really sounds like Ahab's the problem. Ahab chose to go away from the Lord. But then there's what we read in 1 Kings 21, verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. It was Jezebel who brought the worship of Baal into the people of God back then. She had led the people to abandon the Lord, to serve all these other gods at the same time. And so the Lord Jesus Christ looks at this woman in Thyatira and he says, that's Jezebel because she's teaching you to do the same things as the wife of Ahab. And notice how the Son of God focuses on those two sins, sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, eating the food sacrificed to idols, that's not the food that they would purchase in the market, which happened to be sacrificed to idols, and they could do nothing about it. But the food that's being referred to here is the food that was offered to the gods and the goddesses at the guild feasts. The fact that these believers were there, that they were taking this food which they had just seen offered to the deity, and that they were eating of it, it showed that their loyalty was divided. They wanted to serve the Lord Jesus, but in practice they were serving these other gods. And for the Christians in Thyatira, there was a certain pressure to do so. Because, as we mentioned earlier, either they participated or they lost their business. If they would just walk away from these guild festivals and try to ignore them, well, it would mean scorn. It would mean ridicule throughout the city. 
And now you see just why Jezebel is so persuasive there. Because she comes into the church and she says, brothers, sisters, don't walk away from those festivals. Participate. Do what you need to do. Because it's your soul that matters. Your body and what you do with it, that doesn't matter as much. And you can see why that would be so attractive and why she led so many to compromise. But she didn't stop there because in verse 24, we read something else that she was busy with. It mentions there the deep things of Satan. And likely what this means is that Jezebel was teaching the people, yes, Satan's your enemy. But if you want to know your enemy, and if you want to defeat your enemy, you need to understand him and how he operates, which means you need to know his weaknesses, and you need to participate in what he offers. She says you have to participate in sin, because then you'll know how to defeat it. It would be like hearing from the pulpit. You need to get drunk as often as you can so that you know how to fight against it. It goes completely against what Scripture says. Now, obviously, we hear these things from Jezebel, and we think, well, it's clear that she is on the wrong track. But the Lord Jesus has something against Thyatira as a whole. Because yes, you have your faithful believers. Yes, you have those who have compromised. But the church as a whole, as we read in verse 20, they tolerated Jezebel and her teaching. They tolerated Jezebel and her works. They'd accepted it as a possibility that maybe she was right. And so they openly let her function in the church. The enemy had set up shop among the people of God and nothing was done about it. In Thyatira, you have false teaching and false doctrine being tolerated and permitted. And as a result, there were those who committed sexual immorality. They committed physical adultery. But there were just as many who were guilty of committing spiritual adultery. You see, in the Old Testament, the Lord makes it very clear that when His people would forsake Him, and when they would pursue other gods, that was nothing less than committing adultery. The prophecies of Hosea speak about this in very plain terms. And also in Revelation 17 and 19, you read there about the great prostitute. And it says, with, whose wine, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And thus we see in this letter that there is an abiding lesson for the church of Jesus Christ. You see, that exposing of Jezebel's works and her teaching, yes, that was meant to address Thyatira directly. But it also has a lesson for us. Because it forces us to examine ourselves and to really consider, is the seduction of Jezebel possibly at work here? You see, Jezebel's works taught divided loyalty between the Lord Jesus 
and other gods. That's not what the Lord Jesus calls us to. Christ bought us with his blood, and he calls us to love him, to love our triune God with our whole heart, our whole soul, and all our strength. Now, is that the case for us? That we are fully devoted to the Lord? Or could it be that even though we don't want to say it with our mouths, inwardly we know that our loyalty is somewhat divided. Keep in mind that for those believers in Thyatira, they wanted their economic stability. And because they wanted that stability so bad, they were willing to compromise on their faith. Well, is it possible that our economic stability, our financial stability, even our standing in society has become a type of God for us? Could it be that we don't want to be mocked? We don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to be ostracized from society. And therefore, we are willing to compromise in that even just a little bit. We'll worship other gods. And that's something in which we can all examine our own lives. But then we also have to ask this question. Does the church tolerate such things? Or is it the case that the church deals with such matters in a manner that is pleasing to her bridegroom? And yes, when we talk about the church and how we deal with those matters of the divided loyalty and serving other gods, it of course refers to the work of the office bearers. It refers to what is taught through the preaching. But this is also something for each one of us, each member, to consider for ourselves. Because maybe you've heard it before, but discipline doesn't start with the church. It begins with personal discipline and mutual discipline. So what do I do when I see sin in the life of my brother or the life of my sister? What do I do when I know that there is someone living in sexual sin, in slavery to alcohol or pornography, someone who's focused on money, on material possessions, on the things of this world? Do I go to them and lovingly approach and admonish them as I come alongside them? Or is it the case that even when I see such things, I turn a blind eye. I pretend like I didn't see that. I know nothing. It's none of my business, so I'm just going to ignore it. That's the easy way out. But the truth is this. When we turn a blind eye to sin, the church is tolerating Jezebel and her works. The church is tolerating sin. They are not living out of the knowledge of God's holiness and his hatred of sin. And they allow sin to have a place within the bride of Jesus Christ, which he loved so much that he bought with his blood.
That's what was happening in Thyatira. That's what Christ exposes very openly by means of this letter. Because that which is not permitted cannot exist in the church. And when it does go on unchecked, the church will be in for a shocking experience which the Lord Jesus makes clear when he talks about punishing Jezebel's works. In this letter, the Lord Jesus tells the church at Thyatira that the time has come for him to act. We read that in verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. That's quite something because the Lord Jesus mentions here that there's been time given before he acts, and we're going to come back to that later. But in the meantime, throughout all that time, there's been no change. And so we read in verses 22 and following, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now there's three specific parties that are addressed here. In the first place you have Jezebel. And the Lord Jesus says she's going to be thrown onto a sickbed. This person who claimed that she was a prophetess, who seduced so many, She's going to bear the consequences for her deception. And secondly, the Lord Jesus speaks about those who committed adultery with her. It's referring referring here to those who were seduced by her teaching, but who were not fully committed to her. They questioned, okay, is this right? Is this not? But they still went along with it anyways. And Christ says of them that they will experience a time of tribulation. He doesn't tell us what kind of tribulation, but it will be a time. But then her children, the third party, they will be struck dead. It's not speaking of her literal children here. It's rather her spiritual children. Those who have fully embraced her teaching. Those who said, yes, she's got it right. That's the path to follow. The Lord Jesus says they'll be struck dead. And it calls to mind what did happen to the physical children of Jezebel in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 10, we read that Ahab had 70 sons, and under Jehu, each of them was killed. It was done at the instruction of the Lord because of Jezebel and Ahab's works. So those three parties are going to be dealt with. The Son of God makes it very clear he's going to take decisive action. But he also gives the reason for the such action. Verse 23, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. It goes back to how the Lord identified himself at the beginning. He's the one with eyes like a flame of fire. Well, now he reveals that what he sees with his penetrating gaze... It's not just information he stores up, but it's something that leads him to act. And the fact that Christ sees all things, it's firmly rooted in the Old Testament. We sang about it in Psalm 94. In Psalm 94, verses 9 and 10, we read the following, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? 
It also came out in that passage we read together in Jeremiah 17. And there's a reason why that passage was chosen. It's because it's a passage that addresses Judah's desire for a greater economic and financial stability. They weren't concerned about being fully devoted to the Lord. They wanted more in terms of financial wealth. We see from Jeremiah 17, verse 3, all of that possessions they've accumulated, it's all going to be taken away from them. But then the Lord says in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So that church in Thyatira, they needed to be aware that the Son of God was about to take action, that their tolerance of Jezebel was no longer something he could bear, and so he was going to come with judgment. But that's not just something Thyatira needs to take into consideration. That's something for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the ages. What he wrote to Thyatira is a message for the whole church, not just the church then, but also today. Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, searches the heart and the mind. He sees past that pious exterior that some like to display. He knows what lives in our heart and our mind. And the secrets that we think we keep from everyone else around us, he knows exactly what they are. And what he knows, he acts upon. And consider the end of verse 23 where he says, And I will give to each of you according to your works. For those who live in sin, for those who tolerate sin, the Lord Jesus gives them a very clear warning, a warning which is echoed in the words of Hebrews 4 verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So brothers and sisters, when we factor that into our lives, where does that leave us? If Christ would judge you according to your works, where are you left? Do you think you'll be safe from his judgment? Or do you tremble at the thought that the Son of God searches your heart, that he knows your mind? Well, upon self-examination, the truth should be very clear that if we're given according to our works, we have nothing good to look forward to. Because all our works, and even the best of them, they're filled with sin and shortcoming. Isaiah 64, verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. That's where we are left in ourselves. So what now? What do we do? Where do we go from here? Well, the answer is found directly in our text this morning, because ask yourself this question, why is the Son of God bringing judgment? And the quick answer is that, well, because of sin, because of Jezebel and those who followed her. True, but it's not quite what the text actually states. Verse 21, 
I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And those who committed adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. You see, judgment was going to come there because of a lack of repentance. The Son of God, in His love for the church, had given plenty of time, ample of time. And upon repentance, He says there's going to be relief from the tribulation. It's something that Scripture makes clear time and time and time again, the fact that God does not delight in punishment. God gives ample time for repentance. There's the constant call to repent, to turn away from sin, to turn to God in faith, to seek forgiveness. It comes out in passages like Ezekiel 18, verse 32. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And finally, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's very character is that He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in the steadfast love and compassion. And because of His character, He does not immediately judge. But He shows His patience. Jezebel in the text had been warned ample times, repent, turn away from sin, turn to God. And isn't that the message we hear through the preaching today? Repent of your sins. Seek forgiveness in Christ's precious blood shed upon the cross and live by faith. Because for those who do not repent, they will fall under judgment. Christ will intervene, whether specially or at His return. And so believers throughout the ages are taught, do not take lightly this time of God's patience. Because for those who do repent, they are indeed safe from the judgment of God. They are covered in the precious blood of His Son. And they cling to the works of Christ and so receive His reward in the end. Lord Jesus begins to speak of this matter in verse 24 where he says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. The Son of God gives these believers a very simple task. He says, Live lives of faith. Live lives of repentance. Be fully devoted to him. Avoid those guild feasts where all the temptation is present. Avoid the teaching of Jezebel and everything she seems to offer. And live by faith. He says, I lay no other burden upon you. And that's instructive for the church as well. 
Because it's easy that when there are challenges that arise or false doctrines or false teachings that are popping up here and there, that the church makes all kind of decisions and gives new directives and adopts new statements and they try to stamp out all the problems by putting in place extra rules. But that's not what the Lord Jesus instructs here. I lay no other burden upon you but the call to live by faith. We see this worked out more in verse 25 where he speaks of the one who will receive the reward. It is the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. Who keeps my works until the end. They're interesting words. And this might be the part that we like to hear. Because now we're presented with the question, okay, what do I have to do? What do I have to do now going forward? What exactly does it mean for me to keep the works of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's something which our Savior spoke about during His ministry on earth. Because you have the crowd that asks Him, as we read in John 6, verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? The Lord Jesus has an instant answer for them in the next verse. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. To conquer, to hold fast to the works of Christ, is simply to continue in faith, to believe the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ, to claim the forgiveness of your sins in His precious blood, because it's to such people that the Son of God promises a great reward. He says, to Him I will give authority over the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So the Lord Jesus lays out that there's a chain of command here. The Father gives authority to the Son. The Son gives authority over the nations to those who conquer by faith. And that's the promise for those who believe. They will rule with the Son of God over all things. And those words here of our Savior directly connect with Psalm 2. In verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There you have the reason for the Son of Jesus Christ identifying himself as the Son of God at the beginning of the letter. But to his son, the Lord says, as we read in Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, brothers and sisters, we have to understand this was a tremendous promise for the people in Thyatira. Because to be apart from those guilds or those trade unions meant that they were in a position of weakness. They were on the lower rungs of society. They couldn't do their business, all because they held fast to the faith. But Jesus Christ says, in the end, you will be the ones ruling with me. And it's the same for us today, because holding fast to our faith, it might mean economic hardship. It might mean that there's sacrifices that need to be made. When our priorities are driven by our faith, it will likely be the case that we are never among the rich and powerful of the world. But the promise still stands that we will reign with the Son of God. And if that were not enough, the Lord Jesus takes it another step. Because he says in verse 29, I will give him the morning star. What does that mean? 
Already in the Old Testament, there was a connection between the scepter or rod and the morning star. You read about it in Numbers 24, where you have the oracles of Balaam. And there in verse 17, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And the fulfillment of that prophecy we find in Revelation 22, verse 16, where the Lord Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So the Lord Jesus says, for those who conquer by faith, they receive nothing less than the fullness of Christ himself. They will see him face to face. They will dwell in the presence of God for all eternity. That glorious splendor of eternal life which he obtained with his blood, it will be theirs in fullness. And truly there is nothing greater than to be blessed with the Son of God and the fullness of his riches of salvation. Well, that is the reward he extends. And to receive it, it requires nothing than but to follow his instruction Verse 25, hold fast what you have until I come. And behold, he has said, I am coming soon. Amen.